Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2138 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 6 of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Susan, thank you kids. And those that will be watching online a little bit later, you can leave that tower up there if you want. We'll just, that way you'll keep us in, in our mind during the message today. Thank you so much. I do appreciate those who assist with helping the children's message every week. It's important that we reach our children with the good news of Jesus Christ. As we continue our series today about the good news, according to the John the Apostle, it's a message about a dialogue or a brainstorming session between Nicodemus and Jesus Christ. And like last week's message where we talked about the cleansing of the temple probably happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, but John brought it into the first part of his gospel. We know because Nicodemus refers to signs and miracles that Christ has performed, this is probably somewhere in his ministry, public ministry on earth, not necessarily the first part of his ministry because of what the dialogue goes over. And today we want to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. It's on pages 1649 and 1650 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. And as always, keep your Bible open during the message, as we'll refer back to it several times. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How, can, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have 
eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear of their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Here we see in this passage a confused person about his religion. If Judaism had an office like the Pope, Nicodemus, whose Greek name meant in Greek conqueror of the people, would have been an ideal candidate for that position. We observed his encounter of G with Jesus. We discovered that he possessed three outstanding qualifications that made him one of the most impressive religious men of his day. Verse 1, it starts out, now there was a Pharisee. So let's understand what a Pharisee was. The term Pharisee most likely means separated one. And many trace the roots of the Pharisees back to Daniel and his three friends when they were in exile in Babylon. They refused to partake of the captor's food in Daniel chapter 1 or worship the king as God in Daniel chapter 3, having been taken from the promised land and cut off from their temple they clung to the law as a means of preserving their identity as distant sons of Abraham. But more than 600 years had passed since that point, and that admirable loyalty to nationalism and devotion to the law had taken a life of its own. The Pharisees had become a tight-knit brotherhood of political and religious leaders. And they had earned that respect of their fellow Jews as the leaders of both political and religious activities. They were meticulous expository, expositors of Scripture, and they worked tirelessly to apply the general principles of God's law into everyday life. Let me give you an example. The law stated that every Israelite set aside the seventh day of the week to rest both their body and to refresh their soul, which was established in Exodus chapter 20. Now, so that anyone would know how to apply the law to their culture on how to rest as they should, the Pharisaic rabbis added a long list of prohibitions. And later, this oral tradition of the Pharisees would be preserved in a document called the Mishnah. And it contained 24 chapters of rules and regulations on how just to keep the Sabbath. I think that was a bit overboard, don't you? 24 chapters, just how to keep the Sabbath. No one rivaled the Pharisees about being religious. No one could. They were the premier. They were the cream de mint of the religious groups of that day. But before the Jews were exiled in Babylon, a king ruled the nation. And after returning to the promised land from exile, they were subject to foreign governors that ruled the land. And the Jews looked to the high priest for leadership. 
And in this first century, when Rome dominated Israel, the high priest shared power with a council of 70 men. They were experienced statesmen, politicians, and also notable religious figures. The ruling council of elders was called the Sanhedrin, and it served as Israel's parliament and Congress and Supreme Court. It's sort of like in the United States where we have the president, that would be the high priest, the Congress and the Supreme Court would be the Sanhedrin who governed the land and passed the regulations, for the Jews at least. Not only was Nicodemus a devoutly religious man, he was a leader of that religious, those religious men. It says in verse 1, Nicodemus was a member of that Jewish ruling council. But in verse 10, we just jump ahead for a second here, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. Now, John, in that verse, used a definite article indicating that Nicodemus was more than merely one of the teachers among many in Israel. There was no rabbinical position or political office that was called Israel's teacher, which meant a teacher of teachers. This was the general opinion of other peers of Nicodemus. They re looked at him as their teacher. And Jesus found irony in this man's reputation, suggesting Nicodemus was regarded as the most preeminent voice among the religious teachers in Israel. And since Nicodemus came under the darkness of night, and if you'll look at your bulletin insert on the side with the pictures on it, that top picture there is Nicodemus and Jesus, and that picture is very dark. You can't hardly make out the figures in it. But that's because Jesus came, or Nicodemus came to Jesus under the dark of night. And in John's gospel, the image of night and darkness was menacing. In previous confrontations between the religious leaders and Jesus, when they were in the temple, proved to be embarrassing for those religious leaders. So his peers may have, this is one suggestion, sent Nicodemus to negotiate with Jesus privately and try to understand where he thought he was coming from. Nevertheless, Nicodemus' opening lines shows all the grace and dignity of a diplomatic mission. In verse 2, he says, And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. He's sort of buttering up Jesus and saying, we know this. It's possible that he also came in all sincerity to investigate that popular yet controversial rabbi from Galilee because most of the time rabbis didn't come from Galilee where Nazareth was. No good thing came from Nazareth. But perhaps he also had a curiosity, a professional courtesy of going to Jesus and allowing him to at least explain what his purpose was because it was being questioned among the Sanhedrin. John may have summarized this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus for the sake of brevity while he keeps the general flavor of this encounter. Jesus quickly bypassed all that flattering remarks that Nicodemus had and cut straight to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus was no ordinary Jew sitting before him this was a remarkable, very astute theological mind that he was debating during this conversation. And Jesus saw through that with supernatural spiritual vision and x-ray vision. Jesus put before the teacher a theological proposition. 
using fresh terminology, the phrase, in the fir- this is the first instance of the phrase, born again. And the concept was not familiar with the scholars of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the Greek word was anathen, translated again. And it can have several meanings, but the most common meaning or rendering is from above. Similarly, I might say, I received help from above, meaning that God has helped me in some way. However, it's likely that this had a double meaning, bringing forth from above and again together as a profound truth. You must be born again from above. The physical birth, when we see a physical birth happening, it's our mode of entrance into the world, and it brings the potential equipment for the adjustment in the world. We go from breathing fluid to when we take our first breath of air. It's a miracle that I certainly don't understand up to this point. It passes from one kind of life and from one environment to a totally different environment. To be born again, to be born from above means a transformation. Just like we're transformed from being in the womb, breathing fluid, to being out of the womb, breathing air. It's entering another world and adapting to its conditions. To belong to the heavenly kingdom, one must be born into it. It's the same analogy. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Moreover, our own physical birth was not something that we accomplished on our own. We cannot conceive ourselves. We cannot get ready for birth. It takes the mother's body being prepared for our birth. Physical birth results in two people deciding to procreate, joining together physically as God designed. Spiritual birth has a similar connotation. The new birth, is we're not able to do it on our own. It must be done on our behalf. But unlike physical birth, spiritual birth is strictly the work of God. As John wrote in his prologue in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he said, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but birth that comes from God. Now, Jesus made a different kind of birth, a requirement for citizenship within the kingdom of God. And this was so strange to Nicodemus that he couldn't hardly get his mind around it. And this kingdom of God is a phrase that's rarely used in John's gospel. But as a politician, Nicodemus cared about the crisis that he saw in Israel, like many of us care about the crisis that we see around the world today. God's kingdom had been reduced to a province of Rome. Furthermore, he expected the Messiah to be a military commander and a political ruler, transforming Israel into the predominant world and economic powerhouse. But this new requirement that Nicodemus realized is not what he expected, but it grabbed his attention. And his demeanor shifted dramatically. He dropped his flattering facade and engaged Jesus in a very thoughtful debate. When Nicodemus heard this new requirement, what do you mean to be born a nothing? He deliberately focused on that word again, which is a nuance of the phrase. Now, perhaps Nicodemus did it with tongue in cheek and he stretched the analogy way out of shape. 
But don't forget, this is no imbecile sitting before Jesus. Nicodemus was a brilliant theologian, one of the top in his class, skilled in the art of debate, addressing what he saw undoubtedly as something strange from this young upstart. His question said, in effect, what a ludicrous proposition that you have. He says, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man like me go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Of course, this isn't what Jesus, his point was at all. Nicodemus's perspective was limited to an earthly plane and a physical dimension. To help that old theologian see, Jesus offered two illustrations in verses 6 through 8, the illustration of wind in verses 14 and 15, which we'll go over later, the illustration of a snake. Now, to our 21st century Western minds, we have a hard time grasping those illustrations, but the concept would have been very familiar to Nicodemus, and he would have understood those illustrations. In verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Now, the ministry of John the Baptist was well known throughout Israel at that time and throughout certainly everyone in Jerusalem, including this rabbi they called Nicodemus. Now, John called John the Baptizer, Jews, John the Baptizer's called to a, a baptism of repentance in which the Jews would come to him to be baptized just as if they were a Gentile being born into this Hebrew family. And that was unheard of because just being a Hebrew, you are automatically part of one's family, and that's not what John the baptizer told them. But remember, John the baptism was only, John's baptism was only a symbol of that new life. The baptism of Jesus is a baptism of actual life, abundant life, a spiritual life, life made only possible with the baptism of that Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the concept of being born a nothing to be born of water and the Spirit should have shaken or sparked in that rabbi's memory that old familiar Old Testament promise from Ezekiel chapter 36. Unless one is born from above through the cleansing work of the Spirit of God within, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' first illustration reveals a radical difference between religion and regeneration. And the second illustration, which we'll get to in verses 14 and 15, explain how regeneration actually works. As we go on in verses 6 through 8, humans cannot, or can, can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Because religion is man-made, but regeneration is God-made. But let's give Nicodemus some credit here. Well, he, many rejected Jesus outright and saying, he's a lunatic, he's from Nazareth, he has no business being a rabbi. Nicodemus tried to understand Jesus he, and his message and wrestled with the issue of his own identity at that point. This smooth-talking statesman, that politician, had become a stammering pupil. Now, on the surface, 
The problem appeared to be a lack of understanding on Nicodemus's part. But Jesus dug deep to find the real source of the struggle. And note the progression in verses 10 through 11. In verse 10, he says, you do not understand. Verse 11 says, you do not accept. And then also in verse 12, he says, how will you believe? Well, first, Jesus was incredulous that spiritual matters would be so foreign to a mind of Israel's leading spiritual teacher. Now, if the shepherd is blind, then the flock is doomed. Second, the real struggle with Nicodemus and the people he represented was their refusal to affirm the truth of the eyewitnesses that Jesus had been going throughout all of Israel and performing miracles and signs of wonder. Now, there was no stronger evidence in the ancient world than corroborating testimony of multiple witnesses. So they had multiple witnesses proclaim that these miracles happen, and yet they refused to believe. Third, Jesus acknowledged that spiritual realities are more difficult to believe than truths that we can perceive with our senses. Nevertheless, credibility of the heart is what really matters. Who are you going to trust is the question. And finally, Jesus claimed to be eyewitnesses to heavenly truth, seeing what physical eyes cannot see. A human cannot physically ascend into heaven to witness those spiritual realms, but God can descend into our physical realm to testify to humanity. Not only can God come to earth as a man, he did come to earth as a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why Jesus used that old familiar Old Testament idiom, son of man, to refer to himself. And as we move on to the 13 through and 14, Jesus frequently referred to himself as the son of man, a significant title that had roots deep in the Hebrew scriptures. More significantly, that son of man is a title that Daniel gave to his messianic vision. He said, one like the son of man who received from the ancient of days, referring to God the Father, everlasting dominion over all the earth to rule as king, that son of man. And that was Daniel chapter 7. But it's no coincidence that this title, Son of Man, appears 13 times in the Gospel of John. And it's always consistently in conjunction when Christ was portraying his deity, his claim to deity. It was Jesus' way of identifying as the sole Messiah. Now, the word Messiah just means chosen one. And many people in the Old Testament kings, even a pagan king, was referred to as Messiah. They were chosen of God, but here Christ wanted to emphasize he was that sole one chosen, the only true Messiah. Then Jesus drew upon a familiar episode of Israel's history in Numbers chapter 21 to illustrate how re regeneration really occurs. And that episode occurred when the Israelites had experienced being freed from slavery in Egypt. They saw the 10 plagues that Moses performed through God performed through Moses. They saw the parting of the Red Sea and they being able to walk across on dry land. They observed the pillar of cloud that led them during the day and the pillar of fire that led them during the night. And yet they began to grumble and complain. Eventually, God decided he had enough. And he disciplined his disbelieving, disobedient um, Hebrews with the affliction of venomous snakes. 
As the people started to die, Moses interceded finally and said, Lord, stop it. In response, the Lord instructed him to fashion a bronze snake and set it on a pole. As we have a representation of it here. In response, when the people looked at the bronze snake, the effects of that venom ceased in their bodies. He promised that the venom would lose its effectiveness if the person would just look to the bronze snake and live. And not only did the people survive their affliction, but they also gained a powerful object lesson about repentance. Now, if you look at the middle picture on your bulletin insert, I have a representation of that. In the verse 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the Israelites' experience in the desert was the foreshadowing of Jesus, what he did for all people when he was lifted up on the cross. When we acknowledge our sins, we take complete responsibility for our guilt and come to the Lord for healing, then that poison of evil, that sin in our lives, will no longer have the power to kill us eternally. Because Nicodemus was thoroughly familiar with that Old Testament scripture, and he knew Israel's history of disbelief. This brief illusion prepared him to see that spiritual truth that he had been missing all of his life. It was not new truth. It had been in the scripture all along, but it was made plainly visible to him to see because regeneration occurs through belief. Those Israelites had to believe that if they looked at that bronze snake on that pole, they would be healed. Just as we have to believe that if we look to the cross where Jesus Christ was lifted up, we will be healed from our sin also. Now we go on to John chapter 3, verse 16, perhaps the most well-known verse of all of Scripture, and for good reason. The truth contained in that summary statement is life-altering. Even earnestly religious people can be changed by it. So let's examine this verse phrase by phrase, and I'm going to use a New Living Translation to do this. And you'll see on the other side of your bulletin the good news on five fingers. And I want to put each of these phrases up there on the five fingers to help us to remember. For God, for this is how God loved the world. Well, a holy God must punish sin according to his justice he does not delight in destroying what he created and crafted with such care. God is the author of life. Sin in our lives has caused that destruction. So because of that sin, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. The Greek phrase translated one and only is monogamous which is an idiom based on an ancient custom called the primogenitor. And put simply, it was the eldest son in a family inherited a greater stake of the family inheritance. But if there was only one son in a family, guess what? He inherited everything. 
And this is what it means. He received everything if he was the only son, that only born monogamous. As it often happens in language, though, familiar expressions gradually lose their literal meaning within society and becomes more common technical or legal terms. For example, in our language, the writ of habeas corpus, if you're familiar with that by watching NCI, as NCI, NI, well, you know, the cop, cop programs on TV. Get brain dead up here sometimes. But the writ of habeas corpus is a legal document that says the government must have evidence of a crime before any arrest can take place. Now, habeas corpus is a Latin word that means you have a body. And it was originally expressed and applied only to murder cases, but eventually became a general principle that applied to any alleged crime. And in the same way, this term monogamous lost its literal connotation in favor of a legal meaning, sole heir. So monogamous is best translated the one and only son. And he goes on, though, when he gave us this verse, so that everyone who believes in him, which was the Greek term, pisterio, to believe as true, to trust, to place confidence in eternal life, flows like water when we trust in God's gift rather than our own merit. And when we do so, I'm going to try to get these up here, we see what simplicity that we have, that belief. So everyone who believed in him, what simplicity. To Nicodemus, the man who spent most of his life honing his own religious skills, meticulously fulfilling every perceived expectation of goodness and righteousness, this news could have either been a tremendous relief for him saying, finally, I don't have to follow all these detailed laws. Or it could have been exasperating disappointment for him saying, I have followed all these detailed laws all my life and I didn't have to. And pride was that determining factor. But God says, if we do that, if we believe in him, we will not perish. Perish is translated from a passive form of Greek word apolumai, meaning to be destroyed or to be utterly lost. Trusting in the Son of God saves the believer from the penalty of sin. This is the promise. Good deeds cannot make us more secure. Moral failure cannot ever nullify that promise that God has given to us. God's grace saves us through faith alone. And when we are saved through faith alone, we have security. What security that we have. But what do we gain if we don't perish? We gain eternal life, but we'll have eternal life. We are destined to die physically. Some of us who are dealing with aging parents or have dealt with them in recent months, 
we understand that to the full extent. We exist in the kind of the living dead in the meantime. While nothing will halt that process of decay and nothing will prevent an eventual physical death to end our lives, God's grace will not allow that death to reign supreme. Evil will not have the final word. Life eternal, incorruptible, abundant life is offered to all those who receive, receive it through faith. What grace we have. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. And to go on to verse 17, that bottom picture on your bulletin insert says, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The New Living Translation says to judge the world. It means the same. Jesus revealed, reveals his true the true nature of God. He longs to see his creation saved from the just penalty of sin to thrive forever in his presence. Therefore, the Son of God came to earth to save all of humanity from judgment. And what does that provide for us? What hope that we have because of that? As Jesus concludes his discourse in verses 18 through 21, he helped Nicodemus to see the connection between belief and salvation, between unbelief and condemnation. Those snake-bitten Israelites, all they had to do was to look and live. And that's what we have to do. Look to Jesus Christ and live. Because of the remedy was so easily accessible and completely free, it cannot be said that God condemns anyone. You hear people saying, atheists saying that, well, I'm not going to believe in any God who condemns people to hell. God doesn't condemn us to hell. If someone died without looking at the snake, it was their penalty for sin. God did not condemn them. He provided an opportunity to be saved. That per person condemned themselves by choosing not to believe God's word or refusing his grace. Jesus drew upon the image of light. I know I've used uh, this light several times, but that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it, but those who believe can see the light and what it means. On the contrary, obedience is crucial. We should obey God's word, but our salvation is not dependent on that, on that obedience. The Israelites genuinely believed the word of Moses, and if they followed the instruction, they would be saved. As we looked at in the book of James about faith and works, Belief and obedience go together hand in hand, one with the other. If we believe, then we should also obey. Nicodemus, the very personification of religion, had removed that belief from his equation. All he was interested in was in obedience and not belief. But trying to achieve salvation through obedience is impossible. And it always leads to hypocrisy and despair. Religion is the ultimate, ultimately nothing more than faith in ourselves, trusting in our own ability to be good enough to impress God. But sooner or later, our religious deeds will be exposed as for what they are. They're the fruit of pride. 
But what could be less, complica less complicated than belief? What could be more effortless than faith? There's nothing to achieve, no quest to complete, no challenge to overcome for us, no method to master, no merit to earn. We have only to trust in the one who made us, to believe in him who loved us, who satisfied all of God's expectations on our behalf for, and the behalf of all humanity. Pride is not only powerful, but it's blinding to us. So what's the application as we end today? When Israel's finest example in verse 3, the finest example of religious devotion, Nicodemus visited Jesus, he was surprised to hear that preeminent status of his impressive list of accomplishments and qualifications failed to meet the criteria to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in verse 3, on the backside of your bulletin, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be a citizen of God's heaven unless you believe and are born again. Salvation cannot be earned. It can only be received as a gift. We, can, we accept God's gift of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone for forgiveness of our sins. Now I realize that everyone here or nearly everyone here has probably already accepted Christ as their Savior, and that's great, as we should. But take the good news of five fingers when you have the opportunity to share that hope with eyes within you. It's such an easy plan to help others to see their need of Christ. For God sent his son into the world not to judge or condemn the world, but to save it through him. And I've listed a prayer down there. If you've ever doubt that you've accepted Christ as your savior, if you know you haven't, this prayer can be used to settle that for all eternity. Or if you're working with somebody who comes to you and are struggling in their spiritual life, and they say, I just don't know that I'm saved, or I don't know what to do in order to gain salvation. You can use this prayer as an example with them of what it means, a prayer of salvation. The good news on five fingers. So simple. What simplicity, what security, what grace, and what hope we have out of this passage today. It can be used in our lives every day. Now next week, we'll investigate the preacher who lost his congregation. And no preacher likes to lose their congregation, but there was one that did. And we'll return to the story of John the Baptist and what he had to say about that. So please read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36 in preparation for next week's message. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you that salvation is so simple that it can be broken down, the good news on five fingers. For you, so this is how you love the world, that you gave your one and only Son, that any of us who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We thank you for this, Father, for this blessed truth of faith, a belief and obedience. Help us to follow your word and your way, Father. 
We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.